Now when Saul was taken, had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan and Ishvi, and Malchua, and the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn, Mirab, and the name of the younger, Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. The name of the captain of the army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and near the father of Abner was the son of Abiel. Now the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any mighty man or any valiant man, he attached him to his staff. Amen. Now, from chapter 13 and verse 1 of 1 Samuel, as we've been studying, we have seen Saul in this downward spiral. Uh, he, has, he has been making mistake after mistake after mistake, and the poor guy has been trying and trying and trying, but he just can't seem to get it right. And the reason is, is because he's, he's going through this process of degeneration, the process that we've talked about over the last uh, few weeks, this, this process that we see described in James chapter 1, for those who don't believe in, in Jesus Christ, and desire gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And we're seeing this, this process in Saul's life, and it has, has been kind of painful for us to walk through this with Saul week after week. And this morning... Um, the book of 1 Samuel presents us with a little bit of repose, some rest from the constant degradation of Saul's life. And Samuel is, is he's going to rest and, and remind us of the good things that God is doing through this. And so this morning, hopefully, will be a, a morning of encouragement for all of us. And we'll see maybe some things that, that Saul has been doing that God is working in spite of. We'll see the faithfulness of God again. And we've seen the faithfulness of God throughout 1 Samuel. We're just going to see God's faithfulness again presented in the text before us. But when we're thinking about God, God's faithfulness, I also want us to, to think about um, His faithfulness in our own lives, no matter what it is that we are going through. And so um, I'm going to ask a series of questions, uh, and you don't have to respond, but you can if you like. Um, and if you do, just know that you might be an encouragement to someone else, because they will know that oh, someone else is, is going through the fight too or has been through the fight too. And I'm, maybe, I'm not the, maybe I'm not the only one here. Uh, and so just the questions are, are simple. And uh, we reflect on our own lives and think about maybe the hardships that we're going through or have gone through in this life. And the first one would be this. How many of us in this room are dealing with uh, sickness? In some way, some sort of sickness, whether it's um, emotional sickness or psychological sickness or physical sickness. Yeah. How many of us have dealt with 
How many of us have dealt with, overcome, are currently dealing with struggling against some form of addiction, whether it's addiction to alcohol or addiction to a drug of some kind or addiction to pornography or addiction to feelings of anger or addiction to some sort of paranoia or addiction to pain or any kind of any kind of addiction. I imagine there are quite a few, right? How many have overcome some sort of addiction in in life? Have been through that fight? Quite a few of us, right? How many of us do uh, find ourselves prone to to anger? <laughs> Everybody, please. <laughs> How many of us find, our, find that we are prone to uh, sadness or feeling sorry for, for self? How many of us find that we are constantly struggling with some sort of, some sort of physical enemy, whether it's verbal abuse of another or physical abuse from another person. Or we find that there are people who just are constantly giving us a hard time about something. We are, we are fighting. Wait a second. Preacher, you give us a hard time every Sunday. We are all in the midst of some sort of fight, some sort of struggle. Uh, we have all been through some sort of fight, some sort of struggle. Saul is in the fight of his life as we are reading through this text. Yet God is, God is faithful concerning his own word. We're going to observe this text today in three parts. We'll look at verses 47 and 48, and we'll, we're just going to see God's faithfulness reaffirmed, not only with Saul, but also, but also, for, also for nations outside of Israel, which is really nice to see in the Scriptures. Verses 49 through 51, we're, we're just going to see Saul's family tree described. And in verse 52, uh, we're going to see where Saul's attention is, where his focus is, and, and we're going to make some application regarding that point this morning. But first, verses 47 and 48, God's faithfulness. Verse 47 says this, Now when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel... He fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, and the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted a punishment. Now we have seen, you know, starting in 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10, that God has selected Saul, God has anointed Saul, God has appointed Saul according to his own plan uh, for his own purpose. And God's purpose for anointing Saul and appointing Saul through Samuel was that Saul would deal with the threat of the Philistines. The Philistines were in some way inhabiting the land. Now I don't know if it was a military occupation or not, but the Philistines were in some way occupying the land that the Israelites are in and Saul was selected for the purpose of delivering Israel from the Philistines and so Saul has been fighting the Philistines waging war against the Philistines and God has been granting some victories as we have seen described in the previous few weeks which is really cool to see God delivering Israel in spite of all of Saul's sin and Saul's um, cycle of, of, of death that he is caught up in. Right? God has been faithful to the Israelites. And God is accomplishing His own purpose for His, for his people. Now I want to notice something very uh, particular here about verse uh, 47. It says that Saul, when, he's, uh, when the text is describing what Saul is doing, it describes Saul as inflicting 
punishment upon these. And it lists a few of the tribes here in the land of Canaan that Saul, as he is going forth and as he is waging war, this is his focus and this is his intent. He is inflicting punishment on this people. And we know from at least 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10 that this has been God's plan, that Saul would deliver Israel in this way. And I just wonder, what does the text mean when it describes Saul as inflicting punishment upon these nations? Why would Saul have such a position that he is actually inflicting punishment on the nations within the land of Canaan, uh, people we would refer to as as Canaanites. And the reason can be traced all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. And let me just list for you a few references and describe those before we move on in this, in this text. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 25, the worldwide flood has subsided. And Noah is getting drunk, and he is naked, and one of Shem's sons, or excuse me, one of Ham's sons, Canaan, looks upon his grandfather and his nakedness, right? And Noah curses his grandson Canaan. Uh, Canaan sounds familiar. The land of Canaan is the promised land. The people Saul is waging war against and struggling against, they are Canaanites. They are the tribes of Canaan, people who are descended from Canaan and descended from, from Ham. And so this curse on the household of Ham and on the household of, of Canaan, it goes all the way back to Noah. And who knows how long before this current story Noah lived. We can't actually put a precise date on that Genesis chapter 11 verse 27 Abraham who is descended from one of Noah's other children Shem right Abraham um, Abraham is is described in the story for us and he is described explicitly we see this genealogy in Genesis chapter 11 where where Abraham is described as a son of Shem, and Shem is the child of promise. Back in Genesis chapter 9, when Noah is cursing the household of, of Ham, he says, Canaan and his descendants will serve the house of Shem. They will be under the oppression, the punishment of the house of Shem. And we see these genealogies tracing back all the way through all the way through the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 15, we continue to see Abraham's story and, and God is making a covenant with Abraham. And one of the things he tells Abraham when he is making this covenant and giving Abraham his, his promise is that Abraham, your descendants, who are descendants of Shem, will one day, and it'll be 400 years from that point, will one day return here to the land of Canaan, and the Canaanites will be under their thumb. So we see this thread running through the Old Testament, this grand narrative, this meta-narrative running through the Old Testament, where God, every step of the way, is working things out in accordance with His own word and His own promise, particularly what He spoke to and through Noah all the way back in Genesis chapter Nine. Now, as I mentioned, it would be 400 years from the time of Abraham that the Israelites would come out of Egypt and they would go into the land of Canaan and begin waging war against the Canaanites. It would be from Abraham 900 to 1,000 years before we get to the story in our text today. 
And Saul is still waging war against the Canaanites, against the Philistines and the, and the Amorites and the other tribes that are there in the land of, of Canaan. And I just want to notice something. In Genesis chapter 15, when God is describing his plan to Abraham, is making Abraham a great promise and, and making his covenant with Abraham a covenant that only depends on on God, God gives a reason why the descendants of Abraham wouldn't just be born in this land and have this land, why they must go to Egypt first and stay in Egypt for 400 years and then come back to the land of, of Canaan. And the reason God gives is because the sin of the Canaanites, there in Genesis chapter 15 referred to as just one of the tribes, the Amorites, the sin of the Canaanites had not yet grown to completion, had not yet come to fruition. So, so God bore with the Canaanites for 400 years before bringing Israel back into the land. And still, 900 to 1,000 years after Abraham, God is still bearing in some way with the, with the Canaanites. Now, all people, every nation in the world descended from Noah. That make, does that make sense? Uh, because there was, a, I mean, there was a worldwide flood. Noah and his family it was the only family left. And so according to Scripture, every people group in the world comes from Noah in some way through one of his, through one of his sons, right? Ham, Shem, or Japheth. And so all people in the world descended from Noah. And here's what this means. That every single people group in the world came from a correct knowledge of God and God's delivering of that people from, from a worldwide flood at some point in, in the past. Every people group in the world started with this correct knowledge of who God was because God revealed himself to, to Noah and because Noah shared with his children about who God was. And, and supposedly that was a story that was to be handed down from generation to generation to generation, right? Then we remember James chapter 1, where we read around verses 13 through 15, that, that the desire of every person, each one's desire, is conceived and gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to to death, and we realize something about every nation in the world, every single nation, right? And it's that when a nation begins pursuing its own desires, the desires of the people, and that desire is conceived and give, gives birth to sin, and that sin is conceived, and when it is full-grown, gives birth to, to death, that, that applies not merely to individuals, but also to nations, and so nations beginning with a correct knowledge of who God is, or at least coming from that some, at some point in the past, right? Desire conceives, and they begin, they begin spiraling into false worship of false gods. And in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse, verse 16, we, we see an amazing truth presented in the story where the author of 2 Kings describes exactly what polygamy is, and it is the worship of the creation rather than the creator. Uh, the author of 2 Kings comes out and says, all of these people groups, right, are worshiping the hosts of heaven rather than the creator of the hosts of heaven. They are worshiping fallen angels who are presenting themselves as gods to the people. And so the biblical narrative would paint such a picture that monotheism was, was the way that things 
started out to be, right? That there was this belief in one single creator God. And it is really cool and, uh, to go back and do the research. And uh, I, I went back, this has been, it's been years ago now that I got to do this, but I got to read the Enuma Elish, and that's uh, an old Mesopotamian creation story, creation account, the Enuma Elish. And I got to go through and make comparisons between that account and the biblical account, which is really cool to see. And, and in that creation story, there is a single creator God. And it's the earliest creation story that we can find, which is really cool. A single creator God that out of chaos formed all of the other gods. But the early Mesopotamians, they didn't worship the single creator God. They worshiped a whole host of gods. The same is true in Egyptian mythology, right? A single creator God who created all of these other gods and the people instead worship all of these other gods rather than the single creator God. And then you have epics like the Epic of Gilgamesh that tells the story of all of these mighty men, the same sort of mighty men that are, that are described in Genesis chapters 5 and, and 6, Right, And you begin to look at all of these other documents coming from all of these other religious points of, of view. And it's like, it seems like you just trace the literature and trace the history there that all nations seem to have really come from a place of believing in one single creator God, the God of Noah, who would be the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In fact, it's even amazing to, to go through and look and other, other monotheistic religions, right? Like Islam, for example, and, and to see that Muhammad actually talked about Jesus. And Muhammad actually elevated Jesus. And it was written down in the Quran. People were hearing what Muhammad would say and they wrote it down. And then this document called the Quran was pieced together at, at a later date for religious purposes. But when Muhammad taught about Jesus, he, he taught that Jesus was not God. Uh, Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was from God. Jesus was correct in everything that he taught. And that's what Muhammad taught. Jesus was correct in everything that he taught. And then you go in the Gospels, in the books of Jesus, as Muslims call them, and, and you see, wait a second, Jesus actually claimed to be God. And so, Muhammad, if, if Jesus is correct in everything that he teaches, don't, don't we have to confess that Jesus is Lord if we believe what Muhammad taught? And I think... I think, yes, of course, that means there's a contradiction in Islam, but it's, it's cool to see, even in other monotheistic religions, religions where there's a stated belief in one single creator God, even in other monotheistic religions, you, you trace it back and everything points back to Jesus. Even in religions or worldviews where Jesus has been caricatured, right? Where they take the Jesus as presented in the Bible and they almost like fashion like a new Jesus. And it's like this fish, fictional character. Like, um, like in the, the religions that, that go by the names Jehovah's Witness or, or in Mormonism where they've taken Jesus and they've kind of fashioned a new sort of Jesus to worship that teaches something that Jesus didn't actually teach and as recorded in the Gospels. 
And even when we look to these religions or these worldviews, we can see traces of biblical truth in there. Even though Jesus has been caricatured, they're basing that off of a historical account in Scripture. And so it's really, really cool to go through all of these other worldviews, all of these other religions, and to look at the literature, and to look at the history, and to look at the traditions, and see how all of that actually points to the Bible as as kind of the single source that everything else is dependent on. And it's one of the things that, that kind of shouts, you know, the reliability of Scripture, that this document or this set of documents contained in the Bible, they should be the documents that we are investing in and learning from because everything else just seems to point to this story and depend on this story. And you take the Bible away and Every religion and every worldview falls, which is so interesting. Now, I don't have time this morning to defend that claim philosophically or offer you a logical argument. I, I just had time to present a couple of those examples for you. And if, if you would like to read those examples more fully, you can find those on, on the ministry blog. But all of this to say, all of this to, to give us an example of God's faithfulness and what we see in modern day religions and, and worldviews and how they ultimately trace back to monotheism and point to Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior and as King of the universe and as sovereign, right? Everything there, it just describes what we have seen with the Canaanites from, from the time of Canaan onward. They started with this correct understanding of who God was and because of their own desires digressed into polytheism and digressed into pagan worship and are now struggling against the household of Shem just as God predicted it would be to and through Noah in Genesis chapter 49. I mean Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 49. Now that's a good chapter in scripture but we won't get to it today. God is so faithful. And this is the reason Saul is inflicting punishment as he wages war against the Philistines. Not because Saul is worthy to inflict punishment on God's behalf. No, just because this is the way God was working things together all along. And God was working together Saul's struggle and Saul's fight in order to accomplish his own plan and his own purpose for Israel and for Canaan. Verse 48, he, this is Saul, and this is really interesting to me. Saul acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Does that strike anyone else? Up to this point in the story, we have seen how Saul is just this terrible person now. He is a Benjamite, a ravenous wolf. Saul is digressing into sin, spiraling out of control. No matter how hard he tries, he just can't seem to get things right. He can't, he can't really claim the victory of God. In fact, Jonathan is having to win battles for him because Saul is rebelling against the Lord. And here, in verse 48, the text described him as, as acting valiantly and defeating the Amalekites. Brothers and sisters, there is a big difference between acting valiantly and actually being a valiant person. I think this speaks into our culture, right? 
where just because we feel like we're doing some good things, we believe that we are good people. Look how much good I am doing. And look at me supporting all of these social causes and feeding people who are hungry and taking care of, of orphans and defending people's freedom to do what they want to do right here in America. Do what you want to do. Yet in the scriptures we read that even Saul, this ravenous wolf, could be described as acting valiantly. Now this will be contrasted later in the story uh, with David, who is not merely described as acting valiantly, but David is described as a valiant person, a man after God's own, own heart. And the question that we will have to ask is, what, what actually makes a valiant person a valiant person? What moves a person from just doing good things to actually being good at heart? What, what does that? What makes a person real and genuine and truthful valiant? It's not the fact that a person doesn't sin. David will do some pretty atrocious things. Yet he will be called a man after God's own heart, right? He will do maybe even worse things from our, from our perspective than Saul did. Yet he will be called a man after God's own heart. And so as we work through the text, not just today, but in the coming weeks. That's, that's one of the clarifications that we will see presented in, in 1 Samuel. And since we will get there where Saul will be compared and contrasted with David, and David is a type of Christ whom God is establishing, so, so David will, will foreshadow the coming of the Messiah, and the Messiah's ministry will be much like David's reign which would be really cool. But since we're going to get there, I don't want to get ahead of myself this morning. You'll have to stay tuned for season five. (laughs) That's what they call a teaser. So you come back later. Verses 49 through 51. We're going to see Saul's family described. Now this is perhaps the most exciting part of the text for all of us. Genealogy, a family tree. How many of you just get really excited about genealogies and family trees? Let's read this together and we'll do it with excitement, okay? Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan and Ishva and Malchai Shua. I don't know if I pronounced that right either, sister. (laughs) (laughs) And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn, Mirab, and the name of the younger, Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, and the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the captain of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Avael. Exciting, right? You're thinking, okay, pastor, what are you going to pull out of those verses to tell us? So we- <laughs> And the answer is not a thing. Um, <laughs> the genealogies through Scripture are so important. I'm about to say something that may be a little shocking, right? The Scriptures are not always hyper-spiritual. This is a historical account of Saul's family. And I'm going to present it to you as it was given by God in His inspired Word, right? 
It is so dangerous for us. So many people do this, right? It is so dangerous for us to read a text and, and think, okay, now I have to come up with something profound. I have to read between the lines. I have to give these people something. So, and no, no, we don't. We, our objective is simple. We just present the Word of God as it is. Now, genealogies are so beneficial, right? We don't get really excited about reading genealogies unless you're a crazy person like Andrew Cannon. Hmm. The genealogies present us with very important information. First of all, they clue us into the fact that this is meant to be a historical document. Like I said, the scriptures aren't, aren't always like hyper-spiritual. They always inform our spiritual lives. They always inform you know, how we should live and how we can honor God. And they tell us God's story so that we can know God more. But here in this genealogy, we can't extrapolate on this and go, oh, so-and-so is connected to so-and-so and come up with some weird doctrine based on, you know, names and connections that are made in the text right here. This is historical information. Have you ever noticed, you read, I don't know how often you guys read uh, documents that are considered to be of religions or worldviews other than, you know, Christian works. But you read through other religious texts, the, the Vedas, for instance, in Hinduism, or the Quran, or any other set of religious documents. And there are many, many, many sets of religious documents out there. And you read them, and they're so difficult to connect with because they're so over-the-top, hyper-spiritual, and they like don't get it real stuff. You know, have you ever read anything that's like... What? Or listen to some guy, you know, twist the words of Scripture in order to insist on something that's so hyper-spiritual that you just, you just can't connect with that and you can't glean anything from that because it's, it's so up here and ethereal and spiritual that the beauty of the Bible, and, and Steve mentioned it already this morning, is that God chose in His mercy, in His will, to condescend to us and to speak on our level. This is cool that he would put his Bible together through people who are writing to people and for real people in real circumstances and real fights in the, in the thick of it, right? And that God would take his time to write to us in a way that we could understand. And then he would give us clues like this genealogy here, just a simple listing of Saul's family, that he would give us clues as to this is a historical document. This is a real narrative with real people. This is really happening. This is really going on. Saul is really struggling in this way. This document can be verified against history, and that's how you can be, you can be sure that it is true and that it actually corresponds to reality, right? God gives us this information for, for a reason and for His good purposes and so that we might know that we are reading something that is true and something that actually fits into history and into time. Something that under the authority of the nation of Israel was recorded as Israel's history. The history of a real nation that still exists in the world today. Right? And so we know because God has spoken in this way that we can trust the story lines up with, with what really happened. And it's telling a historical story. 
verse 52. Now the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw a mighty man or a valiant man, he attached himself to his staff. Not staff as in a wooden stick. Staff as in employment staff. Okay, make a distinction there. <laughs> probably, I don't know. It's probably obvious, but I felt like I needed to make the distinction anyway, right? He attached him to his staff. Now, remember, Saul is waging war against the Philistines because this is God's purpose, not just because Saul wants to wage war against the Philistines. This is something that's been worked together by God for God's purposes. When we talked about this war being waged against the Philistines, we described how people could digress from a proper understanding, a correct understanding of who God is into polytheism or, or whatever else, right? Any other type of religion or worldview. Some people will ask this question regarding missions and evangelism. They will simply say, does God not, if everybody must hear the name of Jesus, and it's only by the name of Jesus that people can be saved, does God not have mercy on those who never have a chance to hear the gospel? Have you heard this question before? What about John Smith who grew up on an isolated island and never gets visited by a missionary and never has access to a copy of, of God's Word. And the Scriptures would simply assert this. I'm not going to assert anything that the Scriptures don't assert, right? And we just, we just heard it. I don't need to explain it again because it, it just it preceded this in, in the message this morning. But the Scriptures would assert that all peoples actually started with a correct knowledge of who God is the correct story of God. And it is by their own desire, because of their own desire, that they digressed into all sorts of other stuff. because people chose to be unfaithful that the message isn't present still in, in every land. Right? It's because people were unfaithful, not because God was unfaithful. In fact, it's because God is faithful that you can still go to almost every creation myth or story religious document and still point back to Jesus. That's because God is faithful even when people were unfaithful. Saul's focus is this war against the Philistines. It was severe all the days of Saul. This was Saul's focus. This is what Saul did. This was Saul's job. This is the thing that consumed all of Saul's time. Right? In fact, every time he came across a mighty man or a valiant man, Saul grabbed him and said, Hey, you are serving on my staff. Now, most mighty men served as military commanders. I don't, I don't know what other positions Saul, Saul had for these mighty or valiant men. But Saul was grabbing them up like crazy. It was his, it was his military draft. If you are a valiant man, if you are a mighty man, I am scooping you up and you will serve on my staff. And this is Saul's focus. This is his fight. And he is, he is focused on this fight. One of the differences we're going to see between Saul and David is that while Saul is, is focused on the fight, David will be focused on the God of the fight. David will struggle just as much, maybe even more than Saul did, Right? The difference between the two is that while Saul is focused on the fight, David, David is focused on the God of the fight. 
And this is where we run into our application and, and, and where we resolve the questions that we asked at the opening of the, of the message this morning. How many of us are fighting something, have fought something, will fight something? All of our hands will go up, whether it's alcoholism or drug addiction or family problems or just trying to do the right thing and figure things out and and striving, fighting in this life, right? When we walked through 1 Samuel chapter 13, we talked about the reason for the struggle, the reason for the fight, so, so that the people of God would be sanctified through that. This is God's means of conforming His people to the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ, is that we struggle in this life, is that there are real fights in this life. Our problem is, most of the time, we're focused on the fight rather than on the God of the fight. Right. And you think about, you know, you just can't seem to overcome something or you can't seem to claim victory in life. And we all want to claim victory in life in one sense or another. Right. We don't want to be weighed down by the worry and, and the paranoia that, that come with focusing on the fight like Saul in our in our story, the story we're currently walking through. Right. We don't we don't want all of that. And so we focus on the fight and try and overcome all of that, but our striving and our trying to overcome just causes us to spiral out of control, kind of like Saul has been spiraling out of control, and it's because we're focused on the fight. I have never seen an alcoholic stare a bottle into submission. You know? It it just, it doesn't happen. It can't happen. Because we are slaves to our desires, and the scriptures are completely honest about that, right? Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And in Ephesians chapter 6, we actually receive instruction. This is how, Christian, you fight. Spoiler. It It looks more like David focusing on the God of the fight than it does like Saul focusing on the fight. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Paul the Apostle writes this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Whose might? God's might. Not our might. God's might. Put on the full armor of God. Whose armor is this? God's. It's it's not protections that I put in place. Oh, I struggle with looking at pornography, right? So I'm just going to throw out the computer. That's not what this says. That would be my might. That would be putting on the armor of self, doing things myself to try and overcome some kind of addiction. This says put on the armor of, of God. There are better things to do than that. So that you will be able to stand firm against the, the schemes of the devil. We put on God's armor so that we can stand against what? The, the schemes of the devil. So here, Paul doesn't even jump straight to addictions or our desires, the things that enslave us. He sees a reality beyond that. Something that gets to us before desire is even conceived. Right, The desire is still there, but before the desire is conceived, he points to, to a reality that maybe we don't often think of. There's an enemy, and this enemy is scheming. 
Verse 12, for our struggle, our struggle. Paul hears our, that's an inclusive term, our struggle. As not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is, is not against the bottle or the drug. Our struggle is not against whatever we may look up on the computer. Our struggle is not against that, that family member that gives us a hard time. Our struggle is not against that politician. Our struggle is not against that certain political party. Our struggle is not against a local church. Our struggle is, is not against some teacher that misrepresents God's word. Our struggle is not against this one denomination or another. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And this is why we don't just react to physical stuff going on, right? Oh, something happened and I need to respond to that right now. No, instead, what do we do? I'm so glad you asked because Paul is about to answer that. Verse 13, Therefore, because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but, begin, but against you know, some spiritual things, some metaphysical things, things that are happening behind the scenes that we don't see unless our eyes are opened or unless we think to look for these things. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. Whose armor? God's, not, not the armor of self, the armor of God. So that you will be able to resist in the evil day. Some translations will simply say, in that day. And having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins, or clothed yourself, with truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet, covered your feet, with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of of God. Now just as a reminder, whose armor is this? God's. Whose truth are we clothing ourselves with? Not, not the truth that I have come up with. God's truth. Whose righteousness am I, am I putting on as a breastplate? God's right. Not a righteousness of my own from works, but the righteousness of Christ Jesus. So that I cannot boast... And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Whose gospel? And the gospel of what? Not a gospel of condemnation, not a gospel of war. Not a gospel of criticism. Not a gospel of telling everybody exactly how they're wrong. The gospel is God declaring peace to sinful people through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Our sin was placed upon Him and His righteousness was placed upon us. That's the gospel of peace. You struggle, you fight, you've sinned. Okay, peace. Peace because God has declared it and for no other reason. What an amazing gospel. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith. Whose faith? 
God's faith, not a faith that I just muster up and produce in myself? Is this what you're, this what you're telling me? That the faith must be provided from God, provided by God as a shield for our lives? with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Look, you can't overcome it. God gives faith, and this faith is what extinguishes the flaming arrows of the evil one. Not anything from within us. And take the helmet of salvation. Whose salvation? Not some momentary victory that I can claim on this earth. Not some victory in some government election. (laughs) Not... Not some victory because I got my way and not some victory because I finally saw a family member, you know, get their act straight or not because I was able to in some way overcome alcoholism or drug addiction or anything like that. This is God's salvation. He is the one who delivers. He is the one who saves. And he's doing more than just saving the alcoholic from the bottle. He's saving us from ourselves and our our tendency towards self-righteousness and our, and our sin, and He is sanctifying his, his people. If I overcome alcoholism or any other addiction or any other struggle or any, in any other fight, if in some way I overcome even my circumstances, it's, that's only by the grace of God, and that's something over and above salvation. What good news is this, that I don't have to overcome those things to please God? That God is pleased because He is God and because He is satisfied in Himself and that He offers to save me and pluck me from the darkness? That is great news. And the sword of the Spirit, whose sword is this? God's the sword of the Spirit. Holy Spirit owns this, which is the Word of God. The words of self, no. The words of God. These are the instructions we receive on how to fight. This is why we gather together on Sunday morning to have the sword. (laughs) To have the sword revealed to us. It would be weird. I almost said to have the sword plunged into us. No. That wouldn't be the right way to say that. (laughs) Have the sword revealed to us, the Word of God revealed to us, so that we can be equipped with the sword. And so that by the sword, the word of God, truth, which is evident as truth because it's, everything seems to point to, to the adequacy and the sufficiency of Scripture. No matter where you look, you can trace that back, as I mentioned earlier. This is what we are equipped with on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights. Every time we gather together for the purpose of reading this book and studying this book, we're equipped with the faith of God. This is not what we see with Saul. In fact, in, in chapter 15, verse 1 and following, we will see Saul continue to digress, continue to degenerate until finally 1 Samuel chapter 31 where, where we see Saul's death recorded. And contrasted with Saul, we will see David living in an Ephesians 6 sort of way, which will be really, really cool to see The only question that I can ask in response to this text is are we merely focusing on the fight like Saul did which again comes with worry and paranoia and stress and a heavy burden 
or are we focused on the God of the fight who is actually working that fight together for our good like we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 13 when we walked through that together? We'll see David do that. And in David's ministry, it will be characterized by joy and by peace. Even in the presence of his enemy, his cup will overflow and he will write that in the Psalms. The fight is still there. But our focus is different. And when God calls us as His children, we, we, we focus on the Creator, on the God of the fight, rather than the fight. On the Creator, rather than the creation. And our lives become more and more characterized by joy as a result of the trial like we see in James in chapter 1. So are we focused on the fight? Or are we focused on the God of the fight? If you have been focused on the fight and you can't seem to claim victory, can't seem to win, can't seem to overcome whatever it is, it sounds simple. (laughs) Just shift your attention. I promise you it's, it's not as simple as it sounds for sinful, wretched human people like us. Right promise you that's a lot harder to do than it is for me to just stand up here and say it. And I understand that, right? In fact, the scriptures, you just read the book of Romans and the scriptures say, it is impossible for you to do. God must do that for you. That's what it means. He is our deliverer, right? So if we're focused on the fight, that's evidence of maybe, maybe we haven't confessed Christ as Lord And this morning is the morning for salvation. We submit to Christ and Him alone. We pray to Him. Thank Him for His forgiveness. God must do that work. And there's nothing we can do that can get us there, as we have seen over and over again in the text.